Phil. Grab a seat, mate. Oh, mate, thank you. Really needed this. Working for your money. I like that. Uh, speaking of working for the money, in fact, nothing to do with working for the money. <laughs> <laughs> do you remember uh, G-Force or Battle of the Planets or Battle oh. for the Planets? Battle of the Planets, Planets, Planets. I do remember that. Yeah, someone mentioned it today to me at work. It got me thinking about it. Uh, I'm from Canberra and we had it as it was called G-Force. Was yours called G-Force or Battle of the Planets? The way I remember it was called Battle of the Planets, but the characters were members of the fraternity known as G-Force. Nice use of the word fraternity there. <laughs> I remember one's name was Jason. And yeah. we, I think my brother and I both wanted to be Jason. Jason was the leader who was the good look. No, he was the 2IC, second in charge, who was attractive, good looking, with a bit of attitude. Yeah. I think he had a white race car slash battleship slash airship. Okay. Here's the plan. We're going to watch the intro to this to confirm because I'm mm. pretty sure that- Jason was the second in charge, but he didn't have the white car. That was the leader oh. whose name escapes me right now. Hang on, I'll look it up. Jason? Okay. Is anyone I can remember? All right. So, how it came up is that people were talking about classic uh, Japanese anime, right? And mm. I remembered this, but everyone recalls it slightly differently. So, Battle of the Planets. All right. I'm looking now at Wikipedia. Have a guess when the first episode was. Mm, I'd say 82. 78. Wow. So, I think this was that era where all of these Japanese cartoons, that Japanese animation came out, was re-edited, retitled. They used American, American accent. American voices and they just, yeah. Like Astro Boy? Was that, was that the same or? Yeah, yeah. Let's stick mm. with Battle of the Planets though. Of course. So, to confirm, it wasn't Battle for the Planets. It was Battle of the Planets, but retitled in Australasia, Australia and New Zealand as G-Force. Oh, so the version we watched was called G-Force. I'm very wrong here. So, it was actually called Gatchaman, Gatchaman. But retitled Battle of the Planets. But as you say, the team was known as G-Force. So, when I was a kid- That was their fraternity. Nice use of the word fraternity. So, everyone always referred to it, you know- Yeah, everyone just called it G-Force. Exactly. All right. So, here's the cast. Okay. So, there was Keop, who was the kind of skinny geek. Can I have a guess at the leader? Was it Scott? Close. It was Mark. Mark and Jason. Jason was the two IC, second in charge. He had a bit of attitude. Yep. He would be in a contemporary live action version. I reckon Jason Statham would play him with hair. A young Jason Statham. <laughs> back when he was a Commonwealth Games diver. <laughs> there was Zoltar, who was actually very interesting for the time because I think he was gender indeterminate. Hmm. Or he was transgender. I don't say that in a joking way. I think it was a big, bit of a story plot where you assumed he, as the big bad, the antagonist, was male. But it was revealed that he was female or didn't identify by gender. That was like part of a storyline, I think. There was also Princess. Ahead of its time. Yeah, very much so. And 
Commander Gorok. I can't recall Commander Gorok. There was Tiny. All right. Who wasn't so tiny? So, it was, he was very ironically titled. Mm. To me, Tiny and Keop were essentially the R2-D2 and C-3PO of anime. It was that kind of same sort of banter. Or the Bebop and Rocksteady from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Nice, nice. Or the um, Casey Affleck and Scott Kahn characters from the Oceans of Movies. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) To take it one step further. Like Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. Nice. Or they were like the film Dumb and Dumber. Yeah. I think those two in the Oceans movies could have had their own spin-off. They were quite good. If that film was made now, the Oceans films, with this whole culture of universe building and world building, you're right. I reckon they'd have a prequel series based on those guys yeah. or a spin-off. How they got to Vegas and all the shenanigans they had along the way. and It's like the young Han Solo movie being made with Star Wars. It's like- the early days of those crazy guys with their four-wheel drive versus remote control four-wheel drive and the antics they get up to. Yeah. <laughs> so many antics. <laughs> Good show, though, Battle of the Planets. Yeah, great show. Now, I thought for a bit of fun, some antics. I want to show you here the title sequence to that episode because I'm sure someone on Facebook or YouTube has put this on online. And I want to see, having not seen this for, what, 20, 30 years? 30 years? We were probably watching it in 1985. Okay. I'm guessing. So, where I lived in Canberra, we had two TV channels. We had a kind of commercial channel that was basically a blend of three other commercial channels from the Big Smoke from Sydney and the ABC. Taking the best of the Big Smoke. Exactly. Free to air. And the ABC public broadcast, and that was it. I think it was on ABC. All right, here we go. I found it. 28,000 views. Pretty, pretty popular. So, this is the Battle of the Planets main themes, the credit sequence. This is going to be weird. I haven't seen this in, yeah, 30 years. I feel like I know the song inside and out. Mm. Okay, you ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. Battle of the Planets opening theme. That looks like it. Oh, yeah. A new dawn on the horizon. Ooh, menacing, menacing battleship planets. It's got that familiar sort of Star Warsy feel, isn't it? I think Sandy franked a bit of credit there by saying he presented it. Yeah. A Japanese series they bought that he had no artistic control of. Princess. The Jason arm on the hip attitude. Oh, is that not R2? Dude? Is, <laughs> is it Metal Mickey? That's remember totally. Metal, remember Metal Mickey? Yeah. Or that one from Perfect Match. Dexter. Dexter. A lot of green screen there, isn't there? Just a lot of green screen. I mean, the whole thing's green screen. It's just outrageous. You can't have green screen no, no. animation. No one does their own stunts anymore. <laughs> oh, that's right. The um, hurricane thing they did. Oh, yeah. Princess. Oh, it's the undies. The little undie action from Princess. <laughs> that's very Japanese. That's by the merchandise. You think Princess was a schoolgirl? Yeah. You could buy a bit of Princess undie action. Yeah, some, of the, some of the merch, yeah. Sweet. Yeah, that's cool. That's pretty much as I recall it. I'd still watch that if that was on now. 
do they save people on Earth, or were they based overseas, or <laughs> were they based, or were they based internationally? They just like- lived their life in orbit. All oh, right, great name for a song, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> now, do you remember that TV show, or at least the theme, Ulysses? I do. I th- seem to recall it was maybe from the same time. I'm guessing right. it was a little later. Okay. I'm guessing it was like three or four years later. What else was there besides? There was Battle of the Planets, Ulysses. What was the one Astro which was Boy. Starship something? My Starship. That's the worst version. Whoa. It was basically about a big spaceship in space. It looked like a tanker, but it was a flying spaceship. And the, the captain had a, like a hat, like a little kind of captain's hat on and a big walrus moustache. Or beard. This may probably. This must have been Canberra centric. It was probably produced down in Canberra. <laughs> it was produced somewhere in Japan. <laughs> Stand by. I'm going to find it now. So it was called Starship. Here we go. Let's just recall. Like marijuana was legalized back in Canberra. <laughs> pretty pretty early on, wasn't yeah. it? Yes. The long and short term memory was destroyed in my early years. All right. If I put in, um, what are the key words to search for here for anime for a spaceship that resembles... This is your deal, man. I can't recall this one at all. Really? Maybe I'd moved on to Banana Man by this point. Oh, Banana Man? Mm. Hang on. We'll get to Banana Man. That's coming up. Got it. Thank you, denofgeek.com. Den of Geek. What's it called? The show. Hang on, standby. Okay, here we go. I can see the picture. It's familiar to me here. Look at this. It's like a Starship cruiser boat. This is just all dead time at the name of the podcast. No deader than usual. Thank you, Den of Geek. 15 of sci-fi cinema's most eccentric spaceships. Perfect. Some guys categorized it. Oh, I've got... What was 16 and 14? What, what knocked it out of 14th place? Ah, uh, here we are. This is it. The Yamato, Space Battleship Yamato, 1978. That's heavy. Yeah. I don't, I don't so, recall that. That sounds like- It bit, was retitled- A bit adult for me. Space, ba- Space Battleship Yamato. Just how inspiring Japanese audiences found Space Battleship Yamato in the mid-70s can't be underestimated. Mm. When the first movie I, came I, out- I tried the, to underestimate it once and I, and I couldn't do it. <laughs> All right, I'll look it up. So, it was called- Space Battleship uh, Monato. It's like tomato, but it's your tomato, so it's Yamato. This is a terrible podcast recording so far. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Here but we go. Your jokes are good. Your jokes are fantastic. Space Battleship Yamato. Hashtag saving grace. What happened to, like, not interrupting each other? Like, you're like you've, like, like, blown your load. <laughs> okay. It's also known to English-speaking audiences as Space Cruiser Yamato. Ah, here we go. An English dub version of the series was broadcast on North American and Australian, thank you, Wikipedia, television as Star Blazers. Star Blazers. Okay, that's the one. So, Star Blazers was about this giant spaceship in space, hence the space and the ship bit. I'm drawing a blank. I don't recall this one at all. Okay. I'm going to refresh your memory by playing the opening theme to Star Blazers. Here we go. Get this up your date hole and see if you recall this now. Are you ready? This is Star Blazers theme on YouTube, English version. Are you ready? Let's get it. 
That's a very familiar song. Looks like Battle of the Planets without the helmets. Looks like a UFO. Sounds like a submarine crew singing in unison. Sorry, by UFO, I mean submarine. Yes, this song is very familiar. Yes, I do know this show. Pretty important Why mission now, right? Babylons, we won't stop until we won, then we'll return, and when we arrive, uh, we'll there's the helmet. So the Americans just created the name Star Blazers. I'm not sure why. And the theme song. And made it all about saving Mother Earth. Yeah, I still don't quite understand the premise of the synopsis. Basically, it was a giant tanker in space, a battleship floating in space. It looked like a submarine, yeah? No, no, no. It wasn't a submarine. Big oh, okay. boats have that huge hull. hull at the bottom for buoyancy. Oh, yeah. Ballast. But- oh. <laughs> First with fraternity, then with the word ballast. Aren't you just a Mr. Dictionary tonight? All right. So, there was G-Force. Good times. I mean, you'd come home from school. You might have a piece of toast or a piece of fruit, a bit of cake. Settle in about 3.34 o'clock and just rip through a couple of hours of American knockoff Japanese cartoons. Well, they weren't quite American knockoffs. They were revoiced and retitled, but essentially it was the same. Astro Boy, I think, besides being revoiced, was quite similar. My memory of Astro Boy is that the quality of the anime was a little bit better than that. Is that probably because a little bit later? Yeah, I think it's possibly our memory being a bit faulty. I think we have a romanticised idea as to how good the quality of the anime was. I think that it was quite stilted and the characters didn't move as smoothly or seamlessly as we remember, but use your imagination to fill in the blanks. Yeah, and you're a kid, so you just feel like the characters are real anyway. Yeah, yeah, exactly. My kids watch stuff on YouTube, which is basically like really stilted stop animation where people have actually taken toys from Kinder Surprise and whatever and made little animations out of them. They look terrible. They look very stilted and look really kind of jolty. Yeah, the kids obviously just in their own imagination interpret the frames in between and to them it's like a seamless moving animation. So I think we did the same thing. I recall being in Japan almost 20 years ago and um, you could go to a shop and it would just sell artwork and artifacts. Oh, sorry, artifacts. I mean, um, you know, paraphernalia of the Astro Boy um, cartoonist. I forget his name, but the guy who came up with Astro Boy and did all the drawings for him and everything. So he would have his own shop. It'd be like going to say a, a nice museum of modern art shop within the museum. You know, you go to those shops in the museum and they're selling all the artwork by whoever's on display that. At the big exhibition. You mean the point being that it was he was so revered, he was so respected that he actually had his own dedicated art gallery slash shop, which yeah. in other countries 
even though, let's say, DC and Marvel have become more popular through their cinematic adaptations recently, and Stan Lee's quite well known as the creator of Batman, for example, comics are kind of seen as still quite disposable in terms of their artistic form in Western culture. Whereas in Japan, it's much more accepted as being artistic and part of adult storytelling. Yeah, and I recall that the shop was really clean, very Japanese, very simple not a lot of clutter and it wasn't like it wasn't full of like soft toys and key rings and stubby holders you could buy a print of one of the various drawings of Astro Boy or, or one of his um, different characters or something else that he'd drawn and you could buy a print of that framed it was that it was that kind of shop like a couple of t-shirts and that kind of thing but you know not like full of mouse pads and um, stubby holders and that kind of thing I remember it being a, I was like oh it's a pretty classy sort of shop I do always find that when I go into many corner stores, all I can find are stubby holders and mouse pads. It's like that's all they sell, like mouse pads for my computer and stubby holders for my beer and literally nothing else. That's all they have. Exactly. I mean, where do you get your durries and your whatever else you need these days? Does anyone besides you use the word durries for cigarettes? (laughs) Is that a word still used? In certain Certain sectors that that parlance is still used, yes. Parlance, fraternity, you're doubling, ballast, you're tripling down. Um, I do recall, getting back to Astro Boy, being really quite sad in one of the final episodes. And again, I remember it probably being like, you know, eight, ten series long. There's probably only three or four. And there probably weren't that many episodes per season. But I recall it being something run consistently over a number of years, probably because they repeated it. Probably That's probably why I recall it so well. Yep. And I recall this particular storyline that branched several episodes, which was quite unusual because most episodes were self-contained. But this was like a probably four or five episode arc where Astro Boy had to fight multiple robots. And I cried for the first time ever during a television show or a movie. Did you ever see that one? He was just a boy. I mean, you know, imagine being a boy fighting multiple robots. In your underpants with fuck me boots. Fuck me boots that could shoot fire out the back and blast you into space, but still. And wearing a small little uh, pair of black undies where you could actually shoot bullets from your asshole. Yeah, and imagine how much hair products you would have to go through to maintain that quiff. I mean, the guy would have spent an hour getting ready every morning. The sculpting of that quiff before he went out the front door. I went to a fancy dress party at uni, I remember, and some guy turned up dressed as Astro Boy in black Speedos, boots he'd borrowed from his girlfriend with a full heel, and his hair. And he's kind of receding too, with kind of thinning hair and black hair in the shape Astro Boy and nothing else. Middle of winter, it was probably two degrees Celsius. Yep. So, close to freezing. And I was a little bit insecure about the quality of my outfit. I was dressed as a clown or something, you know, like a Stephen King-style clown or something. Saw this dude. I think he had shrinkage because it was pretty fucking cold in the Speedos. But he wasn't, like, buffed. He had a little pot belly. (laughs) It was the saddest possible sight. And I'm not sure how you could possibly do a good version of the Astro Boy outfit, no matter how athletic you are. Like... If you put a boy yeah. in knee-high boots, 
in black speedos with her hair. It's weird. If you put a grown man in the same outfit, yeah. even weirder. Whether they're buffed or not, as a character, he wasn't buffed. He was just a regular-sized boy. Because he was six. Exactly. He was, I'm not sure he was six, was he? I thought it was like ten or so. He's old enough to understand, you know, how to make moral choices. Right from wrong. Exactly. Anyway, there's actually a reboot of that, which they made about ten years ago, which I never saw, a CGI version, which didn't capture to me the charm of the 2D anime mm. version. Speaking of 2D. Yeah. Banana Man. Banana Man. So, you know when someone mentions something to you which you haven't thought of for years and years? I haven't thought of Banana Man in about 15 years. What if I said to you, whenever Eric eats a banana, Eric is Banana Man. So, remind me of the premise of Banana Man. There's a kid called Eric and all it would take for him to become Banana Man, I think, was to eat a banana. And as Banana Man, did he have any special powers or skills? Not that I recall. I think he became bigger and stronger, but that's testing my memory. I do recall a human-banana hybrid man with a six-pack and pecs and a head like a banana, like a pill banana. I seem to recall Banana Man had a sidekick, which was a black crow, and the crow was voiced by Bill Oddie from The Goodies. Really? So, it wasn't even like I a- think so. I think so. So, it wasn't like a fellow fruit from the fruit bowl, like, you know, Max Come, the Mandarin. Kumquat man. No. Yeah, I do recall there was that era of cartoons like Danger Mouse and it Banana was just, Man. It was just a free-for-all. It was a free-for-all, but I do recall they were all five, ten minutes long. Roger Ramjet. Yeah. But same thing, right? They were sh- very short animations used to fill a non-commercial hour. Um, from 5.55 to 6 or 6.55 to 7? Yeah, well, it's quite specific. I'm sure it varied around the world. <laughs> I think it filled the 5.55 to 6 slot because the 6.55 to 7 slot was um, a five-minute cooking show for adults. Ah, uh, like, was it uh, Peter... Russell Clark? Peter Russell Clark. Where is he now? Rest in peace? I hope not. Banana Man first came out in 1980. Ah, uh, yes. So, that, oh, so all the goodies were in it. Tim Brooke Taylor, Graham Garden, and Bill Oddie. So, all three goodies were slumming it in- Banana Man. Banana Man. From 1983 to 1986, with reruns from 89 to 97. So, more recent than the Japanese anime. Yeah. Graham Garden voiced the characters of Banana Man. He was the character with the long, beady sideburns in the goodies. And Bill Oddie voiced the character of Crow. And Tim Brooke Taylor, who was the sort of nerdy English guy from the goodies, he's wearing like the Union Jack waistcoats, he voiced the characters of Eric and others. This sounds like a drug-induced indulgence that the BBC gave the goodies after the goodies finished, where they, they said, okay, guys, what do you want to do next? You guys are Teflon, whatever you want. And they said, let's do a fruit bowl meets Superman as a cartoon. Totally. Anyway, good show. Remember it well. Yeah. Sort of. The scariest thing about getting older is how much you remember the detail of some things that just seem pretty innocuous and not of high value in the importance in shaping your life. But someone asks you or mentions something important that they recall you doing that you have no memory of, like a Christmas event where you gather with the family all around. 
Yet here we are describing in great detail every possible body movement of Banana Man. Yet if someone said to you, talk me through the last five Christmases, beat by beat, I'd be very hard-pressed. I couldn't even tell you where I spent them. All right, I'll test you right now. Where did you spend Christmas last year? Actually, before we go down this rabbit hole, you have somehow managed to negotiate something that no other person that I know has managed to negotiate. It's like in The Mummy or Rise of the Lost Ark, it's the covenant that you have managed to be able to escape Christmas and go away with your beloved on a holiday without your family. When everyone else feels like they are ball and chain to seeing family, you have managed to go to exotic resorts and overseas and somehow done it without actually being estranged by your family. It's not a negotiation. But what was the first point where you said to your family, okay, mom, dad, I'm not coming home for Christmas? Oh, I think it was probably 10 years ago. We just said, we're going to Broome. We went to Broome. That's a holiday resort in the far northwest coast of Western Australia. It's pretty much as far away from Sydney as you can get and still be within the bounds of Australia. Probably the equivalent of going from Seattle to Cuba. Yep. So... I recall you mentioned that to me, and I do recall it was Broome because it was very far away. It was basically like, there is no chance we're going to make breakfast or lunch or dinner. We are out of the state and thousands of kilometers and miles away. So once you did that, though, was there any kind of kickback by, you know, your wife's family or your family? Not that I recall. I mean, and since then, it's been done a lot more. I'd say in the last few years, it's, We've relaxed the restriction, but generally it's been, yeah, let's get the hell away and that's been good. I mean, you do the obligatory lunch slash dinner with each of them leading up to it. That's as good as you're going to get. And then what's the point of sticking around for some, just for a day because it's a certain day. It's more the obligatory catch up before Christmas, have a nice lunch, have a few drinks, chat about the year. Not that you really do that. Give a few presents and then, you know. It's a good time of the year to have a holiday because that's when you generally got leave from your job. And So, it's like an Andrew Lloyd Webber musical where basically you go for the previews before the official season starts and you say to the family, look, this is the time to come. This is the time to gather. This is the pre-Christmas Christmas. Do that. Everything's a bit cheaper. Pressure's off. And then you basically say, check you later, fam. We're off. Seafood and prawns and, and big lamb roasts aren't twice the price that they will be or- come christmas eve and uh yeah Yeah. load up it's very festive scrooge (laughs) (laughs) but i'm just saying you know the lord the lloyd weber previews would be you know the tickets are half price right do they get the full philip or just sort of like full philip on 50 percent of you know full capacity uh he might have a sore throat that day and they get the stand-in he's already check out charlie he's already in holiday mode they get the alternate because um, he's got a cold coming on, doesn't want to ruin it for the big premiere coming up the next right. week. The aeroplane mode of socialising. <laughs> yeah. So, to coin a phrase, um, we've uh, done well tonight, haven't we? You've coined a few phrases in your time, haven't you, Benny? <laughs> Are you referring to how's it hanging? <laughs> Isn't that one of yours? No, no. Now you're being an arsehole. All right. For context, this is what happened. So, I had thought throughout my 20s that I had personally coined the phrase, how's it hanging? I thought I'd coined the phrase back in Canberra, my childhood city, population 250,000. How's it hanging? It being? Well, this is the thing. So, there's two things here. First of all, did I coin the phrase, 
Clearly not. Secondly, what does it mean? So it took a while, in the same way that I basically misheard music lyrics for years and years, I also had the mistaken impression that I had coined what I thought was a very cool phrase, which I thought was cool because I had made it up. And it was a very casual way of saying, how's it hanging? As in like, how your balls hanging? How's things going on? Because you know how men at that age, in their late teens, 20s, everything is dick-centric. And so I was like, you know, how you doing? But not hanging at all. Not hanging at all. So, apparently not. So, what happened was I insisted, I kind of like swore in a Bible and hand on my heart that I had made up this phrase much to the amusement of others around me. But I stuck to my guns. Mirth. Much to the mirth, I would suggest. Fraternity, mirth, ballast. What else have you got? And I thought this was the case until I was studying film studies And it was the late 90s, so film theory. And I saw a 1970s classic film. It wasn't quite a Gene Hackman, The French Connection or anything like that. But it was a film set in the 70s and someone utters the phrase, how's it hanging? And then I had this sudden sort of flashback moment in my life where suddenly I realized that I had all of these conversations, which I suddenly recounted all at once in a domino effect, where I had assured everyone vigorously that I made up this expression, but I'm going to satisfy myself once and for all and have a look here and see what are the origins of how's it hanging. All right. I want you to guess what you think are the origins of how's it hanging and when was that expression first coined? I'd say 1945, uh, I don't know, in a film, American film, 1945. There you go. Well, so the war has ended yeah, and someone and makes a penis gag. <laughs> and they make a film. They made a movie about it. So, All right, second guess, 67. Well, interestingly, there's nothing quite clear here. It appears it was used as a jocular expression in the 70s, as in, how are they hanging? A man-to-man greeting. They, in the expression, how are they hanging, referring to testicles. Apparently also in the 20th century, so very specific. A man-to-man greeting. There's a bit of a trend here, being man-to-man. You obviously hang out with a lot of men in your time. Exactly. What are you up to? How are you? I went to a Catholic boys' school, so... Lots of blue ball talk, I can only guess. (laughs) Exactly. All right. Can be used uh, for both genders to refer to male anatomy and female breasts. Oh, really? Uh, well, I guess I guess how are they hanging can refer to breasts. I've never heard how are they hanging, ever. What? I've heard how's it hanging. I've never heard how are they hanging. No, I think that sounds a bit too coarse, doesn't but it? But I've never heard how are they as in how are your balls hanging. I've, I never, heard, I've never heard that. I've always heard how's it as in how's your big slong hanging. Okay, so it looks like that how's it hanging may have originated from what tailors would say when trying to fit out a man for a suit, for suit pants, where they're referring to what side do your penis slash testicles fall onto. And apparently the majority of men have a lower testicle on the left-hand side. So the majority of men, their lunch, the meat and potatoes, sways left, their left, rather than right. I've heard the expression... That a tailor will say, do you dress to the left or do you dress to the right, sir, when you're being fitted for your suit? Two questions arise here. Have you actually been personally fitted for a suit? 
Mr. Hoity Toity, and two, have they actually used that expression with you? No and no, but I know people who have had that expression said to them. I've heard it as well in an urban legend like that. Maybe way. not. Or maybe I'm just may I know people who have been fitted for suits and I don't know that the tailors actually did cup their balls and say, Where would you like these bad boys to sit on the left or the right? I haven't seen any cupping going on, but I have seen a man on his knees with measuring tape ask that question and then the person responds what are you talking about? And was that Burt Reynolds to Mark Wahlberg in Boogie Nights with I, a tape measure out? I think it was. Did that actually happen? It feels like it did. Yeah. I do recall a scene in Boogie Nights where you actually could see the outline of Dirk Diggler's penis against his thigh with a pair of tight flares. Yeah. I seem to recall him coming into the um, kitchen of the restaurant in the opening scene and seeing Dirk on the washing machine. Sorry, the dishwasher. And there, and Bert looking down and being impressed with what he saw through the tight jeans. Yeah, it's a good cinematic memory. Some would remember the famous scene from Battleship Potemkin where the emotional moment happens where the baby's pram goes down the stairs. But you remember the schlong in the jeans in the, uh, the galley of the 1970s disco. Battleship Potemkin? Isn't that in the movie... Um the Untouchables, or is that? Am I thinking of a different? Oh, am I thinking of a different baby on a no, pram? You're breaking my heart. Yeah, De Palma. Did he rip it off? De Palma ripped off. Oh, no, sorry, he didn't rip off. De Palma paid a tribute to Battleship Potemkin with the same moment, the same sense of anxiety that arises in the viewer when the pram kind of goes down the steps, and you know, just knowing. Most people understand the basic concepts of physics in an innate way where you know that as that pram goes down, the steps and gain speed, at some point it's going to tip over and the little baby's going to go flying and either die or be injured. I think that happens in both Potemkin and The Untouchables, doesn't it? The Untouchables, it happens in the climactic um, showdown scene where Kevin Costner's character is torn between shooting the assailant that he's been chasing after for a long time and saving the baby and spoiler alert he manages to do both that reminds me and this is going to take a dark turn it's not quite comedic but have you heard my worst nightmare no the worst nightmare i've had as a recurring nightmare and this is an awful thing is i imagine i'm pushing one of my kids when they're a baby so once my kids got old enough to not be in the pram, I was relieved because I hoped it made this dream redundant. I'm pushing the kids along a jetty, like a dock, a wharf. And I'm looking away to take a photograph, talk to someone or something, and the pram falls off the wharf and falls into the water. It's quite a high, you know, it's probably two, three metres high. And then just starts sinking. And I jump off the wharf to try and rescue my son who's in the pram. And the worst bit, it gets worse and worse, is that the pram is sinking faster than I can swim. And what happens is, like a movie, and this, I guess, is a reflection of my love for cinema and those you know, iconic moments you see in movies, the pram starts drifting into that kind of the blackness, the abyss. And I'm running out of air. And my lungs are painful and i'm just about to reach because i'm trying to swim as fast as i can despite it sinking faster than i can swim i'm about to reach 
the handle of the pram before it gets swallowed into the blackness. And I run out of air and start inhaling water and basically drowning and go back to the surface. At the whole time, my son is strapped into the pram facing me with bubbles coming out of his mouth, just sinking into the blackness. And that's a recurring nightmare you have? Yeah. It stopped about three, four years ago. But if I saw that in a movie, it would make me age 10 years. But it's a fucking terrifying dream. Yeah. Because you're doing everything you possibly can. You're being a hero. You're being a father. You're doing everything right. You're diving in with your clothes on as fast as you possibly can. You're reacting. You're going down and you're, you're fighting gravity. You're fighting oxygen. And the worst part is I can see my son in the little seatbelt, in the straps of the pram, obviously powerless and tied in. And knowing that if he wasn't wearing straps, he would just float up to the surface. And I just... It's like that moment in Cliffhanger when he's trying to rescue that woman in the opening scenes where the hand just slips or just can't quite grab. And I'm just millimetres from grabbing the pram and being able to pull it pull it up, and I can't. That's intense, man. The conversation just took a very dark turn. Yeah, no, I, mean, <laughs> I think I better stay over tonight and make sure you're okay. You'll have to spoon me through the night. It's okay. It's just a dream. Just a dream. I'd spoon you anyway. I mean, that's just... That's just, that's courtesy. Um, just quietly, the scene from The Untouchables that we were talking about before, which was a rip-off of the Battleship Potemkin um, scene with the pram coming down and Kevin Costner, God bless him, manages to pull it off and shoot the shoot the bad guy, save the pram and the braby. And that was filmed in Chicago at the Chicago Central Station. I'm not sure if that's the correct name of the actual station, but it's their, their version of Central. And I, w- I went there and I got a nice photo of that stairwell. Of the staircase. Well, if I'm ever doing a crossword puzzle in the future, I know I've got that answer covered. Thank you. You're welcome. You want to hear something um, lighter than babies dying in prams? Next time you come over, I'll show you my Untouchables photo. Do you have it framed or something? (laughs) (laughs) Anywho. Sorry, uh, can I just do my Sean Connery from the Untouchables? Go for it. He pulls out a knife, you pull out a gun. That's the Chicago way. That's okay. <laughs> um, it's something. <laughs> I think that's what he says, something like that. This is going to be like one of those episodes where, is it last trip to Italy or something with the Michael Caine impersonation? The Michael Caine. Yeah, that's not Michael um, Caine. Where Michael, Michael is very, he's a broken man. And he gets very, very quiet ended. And then he explains it. <laughs> the two Michael Caines I do in The Trip is the show you're thinking of, The Trip. Yeah. Which brings me to our next topic of the night, which may or may not be worthwhile recreating. But I did get an email today from a major cinema chain of which I have somehow become a member because I wanted to see a movie and that was the only place it was showing and I had to become a member effectively to to see the film. It's for those of you who know it, it's called Hoyts. I don't know if that's available elsewhere in the world, apart from Australasia, is it, Benny? I think Hoyts owns Village and Village are behind many movies like Lego Movie and uh, The Matrix. So Hoyts saw fit to send me an email and the email said, Robert Downey Jr. has a question for you, exclamation mark. And I didn't, 
I mean, I didn't open the email thinking, shit, Robert Downey's emailing me, you know, I better find out what he wants to talk about. But it was some form of clickbait. Totally. Why there's so many freaking sequels and reboots? Why aren't there enough original properties? It's very difficult. It's very difficult to see a film that's not one of- that's not the third in a series, that's not- a prequel of a of a of another three movies made ten years ago, or there's not based on. I mean, Transformers is based on a figurine. Uh, Diary of Wimpy Kid. Okay, it's based on a popular children's book. Look, that's fine. I mean, there's been good films made of children's books before. That's okay. that, you know that's that's not a that's not a bad thing. But as a an adult that's not into blockbusters slash comic book films, it is pretty difficult to watch a movie at a blockbuster type mass cinema screening slash multiplex place that is not one of those things. It's very difficult unless you want to see a Will Farrell slash Adam Chandler, sorry, Adam Sandler type of, you know, two and a half star comedy. Adam Chandler is the brother of uh, Chandler from Friends and also the famous actor from Bloodline. Yes, I love that guy, Coach from Friday Night Lights. You love that guy. Look, I know where you're going with this, and I'm going to suggest something. I'm going to give you what's called film therapy. What you're going through, it's a common thing that many cinephiles have been through over the last 10 years. It is accentuated as you get older, and has the Hollywood film market has changed. And my advice to you would be as follows. Mm-hmm. Let go. Okay. Let go. This is why. I'm not the first to coin this phrase as I coined the phrase, how's it hanging? Trademark, I coined the phrase. You were, you were that guy. I was that guy. I trade. I don't take credit for it's not you, it's not me, or it's, it's not you, it's me. I can't take credit for that. I think George Costanza from Seinfeld might have. But I will tell you this. If it's not you and it's not me, who is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the circumstance, the environment. <laughs> This is where I stand on this. I've been saying for a long time, and I'm not the first and not the last to say this, that TV has the energy, the originality, the independence of 1970s cinema. And TV was once a place where you were a journeyman director or writer who would come on and be forced to try and write or direct to a format to conform and all of the original voices were in cinema, like 1970s cinema was. And now I think it's the reverse, that all of these giant franchises like Transformers, like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, like the DC Cinematic Universe, like these sort of sub-franchises like Transformers, for example, uh, Planet of the Apes even, which has been rebooted, they're like television. They're all massive 150 million dollar plus episodes star wars is the same being a long cinematic tv series essentially where compliant directors who don't have a chance to impose their vision or their voice and compliant writers have to adhere to the production machine but the point being that these films have to adhere to a model a template and I think that's what happens is is that the original voices of a producer or a director or a writer or an actor, those sharp corners are sanded off to try and fit the large corporate machine. But if you want to get excited, if you give up 
And I didn't say this in a really derogatory way towards cinema, and I'd hate for this to be seen as abandoning the cinema experience. But truth be told, you go home, you watch something like a VOD service, video-on-demand service like Netflix uh, or Hulu in the States, for example, or iTunes, you're going to get probably more original voices or cable TV anywhere around the world, like a HBO production, for example, or Showtime. You're going to get more original voices, edgier stories, pretty dynamic actors, many of them who have basically been outcast from cinema because intellectual property is the new star. So those old movie stars are starring in TV. That to me, and also, by the way, better manners. People aren't on their phone. They're not talking. I really, and I hate to say this as a cinephile, since I bought my $1,000 1080p projector, my large, massive screen on the wall, I have a better cinema experience at home than I do at the cinema. Yeah. You don't come out of it smelling like butter popcorn. Yeah, and it's not even butter. Here's the thing. So, since having kids as well, which complicates things in terms of cost and time, if I go and see a movie, this is how it works for me. First of all, most movies these days, for some unknown reason, go for two, two and a half hours. And they've got like... Tri- Don't get me started on the half an hour previews. So, half an hour previews, but also the movies like these Transformers films, for example, they're all around two hours, 15 to two hours, 45, plus having the advertisements beforehand. So, you've got to turn up. If you go to a cinema where you can't book a seat, you've got to go earlier to get a good seat. And even if you get a good seat positioned well, like let's say middle-middle in the cinema, you could be next to some sort of muppet next to you who's just inconsiderate, talkative, rude on their phone. Taking your fucking seat like the guy behind me in John Vick. Thank you, mate. Yeah, exactly. You should have been like John Wick and I was. I was that close to going John Wick on him. I was just like, wouldn't that be ironic? Like seriously, the whole movie long. And it wasn't like we were in a small cinema. We were in a massive multiplex. There was like 10 people there. I was just... So close to just... So, he was sitting next to you? Behind me. And kicking your seat? Totally. He had his feet on my seat the whole time. Like, I could feel him every time he changed position, just like rearranging his feet on the back of my seat. Was he tall? He was... I saw him as he left. He was probably 18 and, yeah, six foot. So, you're a tall guy. Being tall isn't an excuse. It's about being considerate. Normally, if I'm in a small cinema, I'll put my knees on the back of the seat in front. I would never do it if someone was sitting in it. But this is a multiplex where the seats are really big and there's heaps of leg room. There's no need to put your feet up. Uh, Don't get me started. Anyway. Okay. Back to what I was saying earlier is that for media personally, it's a basically it's a four hour journey or event to see a film paying 20 bucks per hour to pay for a babysitter, pay for parking. That's probably about $15. Movie tickets in Australia are about $20, $25. So, basically, what, for $50, $80, haven't even bought food, just $145 to go and see a movie, right? And that's dealing with an audience who are often inconsiderate, on their phones, talking, farting, whatever. We're at home. We pop on something on, say, iTunes or Netflix or whatever it might be. We've got a cinema experience. It's it's free in terms of like we're not paying for a babysitter. It's costing us 10, 20 bucks for cable TV or VOD service. It's convenient. There's no advertising. It's our quality food. The seats are more comfortable. 
and most importantly, most importantly, no interruptions. So tell me this, knowing all of this, knowing that all these films are going towards blockbusters and reboots and remakes, knowing that the audience is inconsiderate around you, what's making you keep the flame burning to still go for the cinema experience when everything logically says it doesn't suit you? Yeah, all roads are leading me towards not going to the movies. Look, I tend to go to the film, to go see a film at the movies if it's if it's a, a film that I've been anticipating. For example, Trainspotting 2. Long time coming, brother-in-law was really into it and he was like, mate, let's go and watch it. I was like, yeah, okay. Big night out, let's go and see it. And, and it was opening night, saw it on the big screen and it was great. Everyone in the cinema had obviously seen the original they got all the in jokes. They got all the connections, and it was it was fun to sort of see it in that environment. And I think that's where, for me, going to the movies is is a good good experience, and it's better than I would get at home. And kind of similar with John Wick Two, was it's an action movie. We should see it on the big screen. Let's go. Um, but short of that, I agree. I'm just like I'm in a situation where we live. 100 metres from two cinemas and I can walk to either. They show pretty similar films. It cost me 14 bucks to go, 15 bucks to go. I can take a drink from home. I've been able to take a few beers in from home and sit there and open them through that throughout the film. So for me, the economics of it isn't really a factor. But sure, I can go and watch a bunch of Scandinavian films, Italian, Spanish, French, German, Russian and British films, I could watch a new one every day and, you know, that'd be fine. But if I want to watch something that I'm actually interested in, say, a good, interesting story that I can relate to and it resonates and has a bit of impact on me, they're few and far between. A lot of the European films that you see advertised are either uh, massively overwrought, middle-aged, angsty stuff about people having affairs which I'm not interested in seeing particularly. And a lot of the French ones tend to be about people having affairs with people either 30 years or 30, 30 years older or younger than, that, than they are. <laughs> that's, that's France for you. Um, or, you know, a lot of them are the sort of some sort of European sojourn for the American elite. It's kind of like, yeah, that's been done as well. But, you know, there's, there's another The Trip movie out with Buddy... The two guys we were talking about before and their Michael Caine impersonations. And it's just like, okay, they've done like three of those films now. It's like, fuck. See, this is where I think the problem with cinema is for you and I, our demographic being, I guess technically we're middle-aged now, is film is catering for two demographics. It's catering for teenagers, generally. This is a generalisation, but generally it's catering towards teenagers who live at home... In fact, teenagers these days, people live at home till they're tw- in, their, in their late 20s. But people trying to escape their home and cinema is their escape. It is their home because they're home away from home, a way to socialise and catch up outside home. And it's catering towards the blue rinse set, the demographic, let's say, over 60, who have time in their hands and can lumber in to a movie in the daytime in a weekday and gets the Meryl Streep, Alec Baldwin or Diane Lane film, which is some sort of film. Like, to me, the perfect film of that is the Marigold Hotel. I was thinking of that exact same film. They've made a sequel of that. Exactly. So it's all of these recognisable actors of a certain generation 
that appeal specifically to that target audience demographic like Helen Mirren, like Judy Dench, and you take them uh, and you put them in a fish-out-of-water scenario, out of their comfort zone, and hilarity ensues. And a storyline about retirement. Yep. So, it's absolutely perfectly almost engineered. I know it's based on a novel. It's based on a previous intellectual property, but it's engineered for the Blue Rinse set or the Grey Nomads, the the greying audience. I'm not being derogatory. I know those terms might sound derogatory, and the baby boomers do often give me the fucking shits. But it's, there's, you know, I, I get it. I get it. They have the time in their hands. They have the income to see movies. And there was an awesome window where that set couldn't use mobile phones, couldn't use cell phones, and wouldn't. But to be honest, those guys can be as inconsiderate as the youngsters. Oh, I once sat in a small cinema. Either the old guy couldn't see or was a bit stupid or something, but basically his wife was telling him what was happening the whole way through the film. She was just going, no, so now they're coming in here. This guy here, he's related to that guy. And But it wasn't like he, the old guy was going the Seinfeld line, why'd they call that guy? I thought he was a good guy. I thought he was him. Oh, he wasn't with him? I thought he was with I thought he was. I thought he was with him. It wasn't like that. It was like she was just narrating it without him even prompting her. I love how you recall that Seinfeld scene verbatim. Yeah. Like, your memory for Seinfeld scenes and, and Kerber enthusiasm <laughs> is just on the money. It knows no bounds. Why'd they kill that guy? But tell me this. Back to that question. Like, I get your frustrations. And that's why I'm in love with, say, a concept like... The Alamo Draft House in the US. Are you familiar with the Alamo Draft House? No. So the Alamo Draft House is great. It's an institution from Austin, Texas, in the States. And basically their attitude is it's all about courtesy. And they have trailers before the films where in some previous cases, actors from the films have spoken and said, Don't be an a-hole. Don't use your phone. Don't be discourteous with the way you eat your food. It's basically a cinema that is about respecting the medium of the film and also also about being courteous. And they've become so popular through this attitude of basically trying to reinstill old school cinema theatre values. They've exploded in popularity. Like, they totally buck the trend. You would love them because where art house cinemas have died off around the world over the years... These guys have actually thrived. They've actually expanded to LA. They've opened up in, I think, Queens and New York. Like, it is our place to be. So, they're a chain. Yeah. Sounds like I would like them very much. So, just getting back to my point about, you know, why they're no decent movies that I want to see the movies. I probably also am my own worst enemy in that when a good film comes out with a bit of media hype, I will deliberately not watch it. Because it's hyped and I'll be like, oh, it's just all Hollywood, you know, it's all Oscar bars and it's just them being it up to try and win an Oscar. I'll watch it when the hype's died down. And then, of course, it stops showing and I never see it. For example, I never saw Moonlight or um, some of those other films that were highly rated. Hidden Figures? Yeah, my, my beloved saw that and she really liked it. 
Manchester by the Sea I saw at the cinema and I thought that was brilliant. But um, again, that was sort of a... That wasn't based on a comic book and it wasn't based on... It wasn't a prequel to Manchester by the Ocean or <laughs> Manchester by the River or something, you know, like it was... <laughs> look, it was... <laughs> it could have been a play and it probably was at some point, I suspect. But look, it was a... It was a, you know, a compelling story, well acted and um, some pretty heavy concepts. And um, look, I I thought it was brilliant and um, I don't really want to see it again, but I might one day. But, you know, it's probably one of the best films I've seen in the last couple of years, I would have thought. See, I feel really bad and this is why. I still consider myself a cinephile. There's that hangover from my film studies years and my passion for cinema and writing and directing. However, I think I've reached that cliche. I've become a victim of cliche in that maybe it's age, maybe it's family, maybe it's work, maybe it's politics, maybe it's the depressing state of some parts of the world. But I've become the cliche where I feel I want cinema to transport me to a world of escapism. But then what happens is it's like this vicious circle where I'll see film, which is entirely escapism. So let's say it's a a Marvel or DC film, a comic-based property. Batman meets Robin and Superman and Wonder Woman and Iron Man. To that effect. The prequels times three. And their various spin-offs. And I will watch that film and then watch it and get frustrated by it because I might find it cliche, predictable, and... It'll annoy me. So, there's this tiny grey area and I feel the audience for this particular taste is very, very specific. It could include you, Phil. Very small. That my film, which balances both originality and escapism, is pretty much anything that Denny Villeneuve is making, like Arrival, Prisoners or Sicario. It's a film that is genre, but with a voice... It's a independent twist on genre or hell or high water. Your time is precious and your time poor. So, you, you, when you see a film, you don't want to be bummed out. And I can totally understand that. Like, look, I got one film to watch this week. And that's why I wanted to go and watch John Vic too. Like, and that's why I insist on calling him John Vic. I don't know why I keep doing that, but I do. It's John, it's John Wick. So, this is the thing. 20 years ago, you got you and I were university students and we'd go and see like Romanian gypsy cinema or- Totally. Eastern European films. And we would actually- I wouldn't see a film unless it had subtitles. Pretty much. I refuse to see English speaking films. It was a badge of emotional authenticity. It was a badge of- It was basically the film that sat somewhere between documentary in terms of being a genuine- story about the human condition between that and say blade or a mainstream film like that but i found that as my life has changed what i need from movies has changed so i think back to my films that i've purchased digitally or blu-rays or dvds and they're all these classic films that were influential at various points in my life not because I was born in those certain periods, but because they're important. Like, for example, you know, the Scorsese films of the 90s like Cape Fear, Casino, Goodfellas, 
for example, or the Michael Mann films of the 90s, late 80s, 90s. And their films, and basically anything by P.T. Anderson, the late 90s, up until before, basically Punch Drunk Love being the last one. His other films are fantastic, but in terms of escapism and something you can put on and just chill out to, like I can put on, say, Boogie Nights or Punch Drunk Love and enjoy it whilst making dinner. I can't put on The Master or There Will Be Blood as a bit of escapism for a moment. What about the scene when she comes up behind him and wakes him off at the sink? Like, that's always a nice little vignette to watch while you're cooking dinner, isn't it? In the, from The Master? For me, that's more of a watch my iPhone as I'm brushing my teeth moment. Fair enough. <laughs> it takes one to know one. Um, well, it's, the only, it's only seen that film I remember. It was, it was a uh, trial. See, this is the thing. Okay, this is a whole separate discussion, but Jeez. I love P.T. Anderson. But this mm. is the thing, is that he was Same. my favourite director after Scorsese from Heart 8, a.k.a. Sydney. I think it's the main title is Heart 8 in... That was 96, right through until Punch Drunk Love in 2002. And I did enjoy There Will Be Blood. But this is the thing. I'm really embarrassed to say I have watched his first four films, Heart Eight, Boogie Nights, Magnolia, Punch Drunk Love, probably about 10 times each. I've seen The Master once. There Will Be Blood one and a half times. And I never saw Inherent Vice. And that's a weird thing. I feel like I'm a traitor. I feel like I betrayed him. Uh, I'm such a P.T. Anderson fan. I, I took my missus to see Inherent Vice at the cinema. And it was like almost like breakup time. She just doubted your entire opinion after that? I was doubting it myself. There Will Be Blood is good. Like, that's a good film. I sort of put in the same category as what, the assassination of Jesse James in that it's sort of you get out of it what you put into it kind of thing, but you got to put it, you got to put the effort in. See, There Will Be Blood, I think, is a fantastic film. And that scene in the bowling alley at the end, actually, there are various scenes. The scene where his son goes deaf, there's the scene at the very start, which is without dialogue, when he is digging in the oil well. That great scene in the bowling alley at the end when Daniel Day-Lewis is off his rocker. And that scene where he rejects his son behind the desk at the very end, Spoilers. All those scenes, I love that film. And I admire There Will Be Blood as being truly cinematic and an incredible achievement at all levels, acting, writing, producing, directing. But in terms of just an escapist film to just whack on, Mm. to play, Mm. it's not like a easy revisit. It feels like it's designed for the cinema or designed for a concentrated mm. full three-hour sit-down. I agree, but I know people quite well who will watch vignettes of There Will Be Blood, like little 10-minute snips, their favourite little 10 minutes. <laughs> like, who are these people? <laughs> yeah, I know. They're related to me. Really? <laughs> anyway, yeah. Shout out, shout out, Martin, Stephen. All right, mate. That was good to catch up, and um, I'll have plenty more grits for the meal next week. <laughs> That was a phrase I coined back in the day. <laughs> what is grist, might you ask? It is the mill that makes grist. <laughs> we'll be talking about that next week. Uh, see you, mate. See you, bye.